We want to welcome you to the Bible teaching ministry of Fellowship Bible Church, where our desire is to honor God by faithful obedience to His Word. If you want to understand the Bible better, please continue to listen as Pastor Matt Postiff explains and applies the biblical text one verse at a time. You can reach us with questions or for more teaching audio and print material at our website, fbcaa.org. You can also watch our services live at fbcaa.org slash live. We want to thank you for listening and pray that you will be edified. Join us now as Pastor Postiff opens God's Word. Good evening to all. It is after 6 o'clock now, so it is evening. Okay, thank you, John. I appreciate that. All right, take your Bibles, if you would, tonight. We're going to read in uh, 1 Chronicles again. And uh, another, another tongue twister here for all of you Hebrew scholars out there. We saw last time uh, the divisions of the Levites generally, but now the divisions of a subset of them, the priests, which uh, became something of a long-running pattern for the Levites and the priests to serve God in the temple over the upcoming, uh, from this point of time, the upcoming centuries, even up to the time of the birth of John the Baptist and of Jesus, as we saw with Zechariah in the temple and his serving in his course. It says now, uh, verse 1 of chapter 24, now these are the divisions of the sons of Aaron. The sons of Aaron were Nadab, Abihu, Eleazar, and Ithamar. And Nadab and Abihu died before their father and had no children. Therefore, Eleazar and Ithamar ministered as priests. Then David with Zadok of the sons of Eleazar and Ahimelech of the sons of Ithamar divided them according to the schedule of their service. There were more leaders found of the sons of Eleazar than of the sons of Ithamar, and thus they were divided. Among the sons of Eleazar were 16 heads of their father's houses and eight heads of their father's houses among the sons of Ithamar. Thus they were divided by lot, one group as another, for there were officials of the sanctuary and officials of the house of God from the sons of Eleazar and from the sons of Ithamar. And the scribe, Shemaiah, son of Nethanel and of the Levites, wrote them down before the king, the leaders, Zadok the priest, Ahimelech the son of Abiathar, and the heads of the father's houses of the priests and Levites, one father's house taken for Eleazar and one for Ithamar. Now the first lot fell to Jehoiarib, the second to Jediah, the third to Harim, the fourth to Seorim, the fifth to Melchijah, the sixth to Mijamin, the seventh to Hakoz, the eighth to Abijah, the ninth to Jeshua, the tenth to Shechaniah, the eleventh to Eliashib, the twelfth to Jakim, the thirteenth to Hupa, the fourteenth to Jeshabiab, the fifteenth to Bilgah, the sixteenth to Immer, the seventeenth to Hezir, the eighteenth to Hapazes, that's a name you ought to remember right there. That's a good one for all of you having babies that need to figure out names. Yes. Uh, the 19th to Pethahiah, the 20th to Jehezekel, the 21st to Jachin, the 22nd to Gamul, the 23rd to Deliah, the 24th to Maaziah. This was the schedule of their service for coming into the house of the Lord according to their ordinance by the hand of Aaron their father, as the Lord God of Israel had commanded him. And the rest of the sons of Levi, of the sons of Amram, Shubael, of the sons of Shubael, Jechadiah, concerning Rechabiah, of the sons of, the sons of Rechabiah, the first was Ishiah, of the Izarites, Shalomot, of the sons of Shalomot, Jahath, of the sons of Hebron, Jeriah was the first, Amariah the second, Jehaziel the third, and 
uh, Jechamiam the fourth. The sons of Uziel, Micah. The sons of Micah, Shamir. Brother of Micah, Ishiah. Of the sons of Ishiah, Zechariah. The sons of Merari were Mahli and Mushi. The son of Jaziah, Beno. The son of Merari by Jaziah were Beno, Shoham, Zakur, and Ibri. Of Mahil, Eleazar, who had no sons. Of Kish, the son of Kish, Jeremiel. Also, the sons of Mushi were Mahli, Eder, Jeremote. These were the sons of Levites according to their fathers' houses. These also cast lots, just as their brothers, the sons of Aaron, did in the presence of King David, Zadok, Ahimelech, and the heads of the fathers' houses of the priests and Levites. The chief fathers did just as their younger brethren. All right, well, David is setting in order the affairs of the temple, and that's the second of the chapters. There'll be uh, several more uh, divisions that come up here in the near future of our reading. But we're not going to get there tonight. We're going to go instead to the Gospel of Mark, if you would please. Gospel of Mark. And I'd like to have you uh, focus on the last several chapters, last uh, 14 and 15 in particular. We're just going to run through these chapters, and I want to think with you about something related to the Lord's table. Now, we will, at the end of this service, uh, stop our live stream after the preaching and a prayer, and then privately partake of the Lord's table here at the church building, um, as our practice has always been. And what I'd like to do is just make sure that if you're here and visiting, that you know that you are welcome to partake of the Lord's table if you're a born-again believer in Christ, if you're baptized in water, or intend to be so at the next available opportunity. But if you're not a believer or not intending to be baptized as a profession of faith publicly, then you'd be best served to withhold partaking of the elements of the table. You also should be walking in good fellowship with the Lord, uh, making sure your sins are confessed and that you have nothing that would withhold you from uh, worship. Remember what the Lord said, if you come to the altar, well, this isn't an altar, but it's kind of like that, and you remember you have something against a brother or a brother has something against you, perhaps better put from his lips, then you go and you make that right with your brother uh, the First Corinthians 11 teaching is quite clear, although sometimes it's kind of mixed up, that the issue in the church there was a division within the body that was not being handled correctly. And they were some taking the, the supper before others, and, and uh, there were the haves and the have-nots, and there was kind of class stratification in the church, and that was not permitted uh, in the gospel because you, you don't have partiality or of levels or castes in the gospel. And so because they were mistreating the Lord's table, they were uh, some were weak and some were sick, and in fact some had even died because of their disobedience. And so we guard the table that way, although we don't know exactly what your particular and personal situation is, but we do put those uh, kind of fences, if you will, around it. So the view that, that I have taught of the table is not uh, closed, nor is it open. Okay? Closed communion would be only members of this assembly could participate. That doesn't seem to be biblical to me. I'm sure that the Apostle Paul was not a member of every local church that he planted, but he partook of the Lord's table there. But at the same time, neither is an open uh, 
communion uh, appropriate. Now, there are churches who do that. Anybody who comes, welcome to partake. This is just, uh, this is the Lord's table, not the church's table, and um, you can partake. But the problem with that is, for example, that the church is taught to not even eat with, uh, say, a brother or sister who is walking in disobedience. And I think it certainly refers to eating of the Lord's table elements together. So if if there's somebody who's walking in disobedience, they're not permitted to partake of the Lord's table as if everything is okay, as if there's no sin problem, there's no issue of repentance or anything like that. That's not the case. So we welcome you to, to participate under those constraints or conditions, if you will. I've often also said that if that all sounds like it's too much, you have to remember that uh, none of us are worthy to come to the table in ourselves. And you might think, oh, well, I'm not perfect enough for the table at this church. Well, join the club. Uh, that's why we're here. Uh, we're all that way. But there is a difference between an imperfect person who is repentant over their sin and trying to walk with the Lord and an imperfect person who is not repentant over their sin and not bothering to care about their walk with Christ. So vast difference between those two categories. And uh, we certainly don't want to be hypocritical um, or anything of that nature. We're humble in the sense that we know that we need what the Lord was represented here at the table, the death of our Lord for sinners. We need that more than anything else in the, in the whole world. I want you to think with me about what the Lord Jesus was thinking. Remember, he was not... He was not simply a God figure in, uh, in, in, the, in the garb of a fake man. He was not an appearance, an apparition of a man. He was a real man. He was a real human being. And just like us, sin accepted, it's often said, sin you know, excluded from that likeness. But other than that, just like us, a man. And imagine in his humanity coupled with the knowledge in advance that his deity offered to his human consciousness of what he must have been going through at that Last Supper. I called my message tonight the awful anticipation at the Lord's table. And really what I'm talking about is the awful anticipation of our Lord at the Last Supper, which is the first Lord's table service, if you will. Uh, of course, with the Lord present, which is unique than compared to what we have, but the awful anticipation of the Lord's table. What did the Lord contemplate as he sat at the table with his disciples? Read uh, each of these sections with your eyes with me as I read them and follow along and then think about all the things on Jesus' mind. Uh, I have listed um, 12 12 items. Uh, maybe a couple of them could be combined and you could tighten the outline up a little bit, but you'll see why it comes out to, like, to that number here soon. Let's start in Mark chapter 14 and verse number uh, 10. At the Lord's table, the first one, the Last Supper, the Lord knew a number of things were about to happen to him. And this, what made the, this is what made the anticipation so awful. 
Verse 10 says, Then Judas Iscariot, one of the twelve, went to the chief priests to betray him to them. And when they heard it, they were glad. Sick, isn't it? Sick. And promised to give him money. So he sought how he might conveniently betray him. Now, it's so nice. You've got to come up with a convenient time and a convenient way to betray the man who loved you and called you into service for him three and a half years ago and took you about the nation of Israel and Galilee and Judea and Samaria and Caesarea and, and throw him under the bus. Listen to Matthew 17.22. While they were staying in Galilee, Jesus said to them, The Son of Man is about to be betrayed into the hands of men. He knew in advance what was going to occur to him. The betrayal of Judas is here plotted and planned. Second, a second, hold your thought on the second. Let's read a few more verses here. Jesus uh, is going now to uh, set up for the Lord's table, the Passover really is how it was then. It says now in verse 12, on the first day of unleavened bread, when they killed the Passover lamb, his disciples said to him, where do you want us to go and prepare that we may eat the Passover, or you may eat the Passover? And he sent out two of his disciples and said to them, go into the city and, uh, and uh, a man uh, will meet you carrying a pitcher of water, follow him. And you know the story about how they followed the, this fellow, they found him and they found a uh, place for them to uh, have the meal. Verse 17, in the evening he came with the twelve. Now as they sat and ate, Jesus said, Assuredly, I say to you, one of you who eats with me will betray me. There it is again. He knew that uh, he was going to be betrayed. Awful anticipation. And they began to be sorrowful and say to him, one by one, Is it I? And another said, Is, is it I? And he answered and said to them, It is one of the twelve who dips with me in the dish. The Son of Man indeed goes just as it is written of him. But woe to that man by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. It would, be, it would have been good for that man if he had never been born. And as they were eating, Jesus took bread and blessed it and broke it and gave it to them and said, Take, eat, this is my body. Then he took the cup and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them and they, drank, they all drank from it. And he said to them, This is my blood of the new covenant, which is shed for many. Surely I say to you, I will no longer drink of the fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new in the kingdom of God. And when they had sung a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives. And those are the, the words, and the, that occasion is what the Apostle Paul reminded the church of in 1 Corinthians 11. I received from the Lord, uh, first of all, that which I also delivered to you, and uh, besides, you know, the gospel, he's delivered to them the, the message of the ordinance regarding the gospel, that is the Lord's Supper, that they were to, to partake of regularly to remember the Lord, um, to remember his blood shed for many. And so we come now to the second of those things that made the anticipation awful for our Lord as he knew right around this time what was about to occur, 1427. Then Jesus said to them, All of you will be made to stumble because of me this night, for it is written, I will strike the shepherd and the sheep will be scattered. But after I have been raised, I will go before you to Galilee. See, he knew about this. He knew about his death. He knew about his resurrection. 
Uh, he knew that he was going to go to Galilee. But Peter said to him, even if all are made to stumble, yet I will not be. Verse 30, Jesus said to him, assuredly, I say to you today, even this night before the rooster crows twice, you will deny me three times. But he spoke more vehemently, if I have to die with you, I will not deny you. And they all said likewise, probably one of the most quickly read over phrases in the Bible. And they all said likewise. They were all with Peter. You know, they all, they had very confident boldness that they were going to stand for the Lord and they weren't because scripture had prophesied that the shepherd would be stricken and the sheep would be scattered. The Lord knew in advance about Peter's denial. He knew that it was, he, he, had, he knew it enough to predict it or prophesy it because of omniscience and the Logos, the second person of the Trinity, had disclosed such things to the person, the human consciousness of Jesus. Let's go to Mark chapter 14, 32. What was he anticipating, awfully anticipating here? Two things, I think, with regard to this next section, 32 to 42. Let's read it, and then I'll make my comment. Then they came to a place which was named Gethsemane, and he said to his disciples, Sit here while I pray. And he took Peter, James, and John with him, and he began to be troubled and deeply distressed. You can see the awful anticipation weighing heavily upon him mentally and physically. Then he said to them, My soul is exceedingly sorrowful, even to death. Stay here and watch. Can you imagine? Even to death? He went a little farther and fell on the ground and prayed that if it were possible, the hour might pass from him. In other words, that he might circumvent or go around this hour that was coming, this time. And he said, Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. Take this cup away from me. Nevertheless, not what I will, but what you will. Now, this is, I think, confounded some who have said, well, why would he say that? Doesn't he know that he can't say that? <laughs> That's not right for him to say that. I think it was right for him to say that. Uh, what, what would you think about a human who reveled in suffering? Well, that doesn't make any sense, does it? Yeah, that's foreign to the human nature and desire, suffering. So to express that he'd rather not do it, but if he has to, he has to, that's a better way than just saying, you know, yeah, or whatever will be, will be, or, you know, that's not a godly philosophy. Or, you know, running headlong into some kind of, you know, masochistic kind of situation where he loves suffering and pain. Verse 37, then he came and found them sleeping and said to Peter, Simon, are you sleeping? Could you not watch one hour? Watch and pray lest you enter into temptation. The spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. I think the Lord went away for a little while and he prayed and he prayed uh, with the basic message that's given to us in verse 36. I don't think that he just said this repetitively but this is the summation of the basic message of his prayer. Again, he went away and prayed and spoke the same words. And when he returned, verse 40, he found them asleep again, for their eyes were heavy and they did not know what to answer him. It had been a long day. It was dark. It was quiet. It uh, happens to them like it happens to you and me. 
We fall asleep in circumstances like that, especially when it's late, late, late at night. Then he came the third time and said to them, are you still sleeping and resting? It's enough. The hour has come. So when he said, let this hour pass from me, it wasn't going to pass from him. The hour has come now. Behold, the Son of Man is being betrayed into the hands of sinners. Rise, let us be going. See, my betrayer is at hand. So the betrayal of Judas is on his mind. The betrayal predicted of Peter is on his mind. I think here we have two other elements. One is the physical suffering that he's going to face. The physical suffering that he's going to face. In fact, it was already beginning because the weight of what was about to happen weighed on him so heavily that his soul was sorrowful even to death. His body responded in a very um, a very extreme way with sweating drops of blood. Uh, that's a real breakdown of the physical condition, and uh, it was a bad situation all the way around. He knew the physical suffering that was upcoming, that he was going to be, well, all kinds of things. We'll show you in just a moment what the text says. But that's number three. Then number four, I think in the same passage, we see not only the physical suffering of the Lord Jesus, but we see his spiritual suffering is how I've called it, the spiritual suffering. The Lord knew in advance also this awful anticipation of being under the wrath of the living God. Not just the physical suffering, but the spiritual, uh, we could say, um, uh, abandonment in a way, the forsaking, the uh, punishment, the wrath of God poured out against sin. I don't see how you can get around this. I mean, if if Jesus didn't suffer the wrath of God on the cross, then you would have to suffer the wrath of God on the cross because that wrath that wrath has to be spent somehow. It has to be spent. It cannot, it cannot just sit in reserve for all of eternity and just be swept away, uh, hidden away, or put under a rug or something like that or, or ignored. The penalty of sin is real. And if it wasn't spent, then you could not call God a good judge just like today, you cannot call a judge good if he lets people out of punishment even though they have done something wicked. So you have the upcoming physical suffering, the upcoming spiritual suffering. The Lord knew also in advance another event that was going to occur. In uh, Mark chapter 9, don't have to turn there, but I'll turn there for you and just read in Mark 9 and verse uh, 31. For he taught his disciples and said to them, the Son of Man is being betrayed into the hands of men, and they will kill him. And after he is killed, he will rise again the third day. So the Lord knew that he was going to be incarcerated, if you will, or arrested. The Lord knew this in advance. And he, he tells them, well, let's look at uh, back in chapter 14, uh, verse 43. <clears throat> uh, well, actually, I'm thinking uh, it's actually back in 38, the phrase that I was going to pick up. Uh, Jesus says, watch and pray lest you enter temptation. The spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. The flesh is weak. It seems even a bit, in a sense, relevant to Jesus himself. He doesn't want to suffer in the flesh that he faced the suffering on the cross. Not that his flesh was weak as Peter's was or as ours is, but the power of temptation in his humanity to the max in a way that not even the disciples could imagine because they had never faced such a thing before and certainly not successfully faced it. They, we know that because they were scattered 
even at the level of persecution or suffering or uh, angst that they were about to experience, which was not what the Lord was uh, going to undergo. So the Lord knew that he was going to be arrested and all that would come after that. This, this is on his mind as he's in the Lord's Supper service, the Last Supper, and as he's here with the disciples. Immediately when he was speaking with, uh, while he was still speaking rather, Judas, one of the twelve with a great multitude with swords and clubs, came from the chief priests and the scribes and the elders. Verse 44, now his betrayer had given them a sign saying, or a signal, whomever I kiss, he's the one, seize him and lead him away safely. As soon as he had come, he immediately went up to him and said to him, Rabbi, Rabbi, and kissed him. Then they laid their hands on him and took him away. And one of those who stood by drew his sword and struck the servant of the high priest and cut off his ear. Then Jesus answered and said to them, Have you come out as against a robber with swords and clubs to take me? I was daily with you in the temple teaching, and you did not seize me. But the scriptures must be fulfilled. Then they all forsook him and fled. So not only did the Lord predict that Peter would deny him, but that all the disciples would leave him, and then, in fact, it occurred, and he knew that was going to occur. As he had quoted from the Old Testament, you remember where he found this portion, I will strike the shepherd and the sheep will be scattered? You remember where that is? That's in Zechariah 13. Zechariah 13 and verse 7, the Lord well instructed in the Old Testament knew that they were going to abandon him. And uh, there's, there's, uh, there are some more awful things than, than, than this, but this is one of them, when all of your friends leave you, when they just reject you, when they turn away from you, uh, when family turns away from you. Um, you know, when you, if you become a follower of Christ and your non-Christian family turns away from you, or you express a certain opinion about a political matter and your family turns against you. You know, doesn't that feel awful? Yeah. The abandonment by the disciples. Well, verse 51 is a little uh, cameo appearance of Mark, I think, the author of the uh, gospel here in 52. And then in 53, Jesus faces a trial, and he knows that he's going to face a trial by an unjust group of people in Matthew chapter 16 and verse number 21. Before these events occurred, it says, 16:21. from that time Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and be raised the third day. The Lord knew in advance this would occur, starting in verse 53. They led Jesus away to the high priest, and with him were assembled all the chief priests, the elders, and the scribes. But Peter followed him at a distance, right into the courtyard of the high priest, and he sat with the servants and warmed himself at the fire. Now the chief priests and all the council sought testimony against Jesus to put him to death, but found none. For many bore false witness against him, but their testimonies did not agree. Then some rose up and bore false witness against him, saying, We we heard him say, I will destroy this temple made with hands, and within three days I will build another made without hands. But not even then did their testimony agree. And 
the high priest stood up in the midst and asked Jesus, saying, Do you answer nothing? What is it these men testify against you? But he kept silent and answered nothing. Again, the high priest asked him, saying to him, Are you the Christ, the Son of the Blessed? Jesus said, I am. And you will see the Son of Man sitting on the right hand of power, of the power, and coming with the clouds of heaven. Then the high priest tore his clothes and said, What further need do we have of witnesses? You have heard the blasphemy. What do you think? And they all condemned him to be deserving of death. And some began to spit on him and to blindfold him and to beat him and to say to him, Prophesy. And the officers struck him with the palms of their hands. The trial by the Sanhedrin. Then the text tells us that Peter who had been predicted to deny him, actually, in fact, did that dirty thing. We saw that in Mark 14, 27 and 31, where he told Peter that that would happen, and now it has happened. Peter was in the courtyard below with one of the servant girls of the high priest, came in and when verse 67, and when she saw Peter warming himself, she looked at him and said, you also were with Jesus of Nazareth, but he denied it saying, I neither know nor understand what you are saying. And he went out on the porch, and a rooster crowed. And the servant girl saw him again and began to say to those who stood by, This is one of them. But he denied it again. And a little later, those who stood by said to Peter again, Surely you are one of them, for you are a Galilean, and your speech shows it. And he began to curse and swear. Maybe that's Galilean too, I don't know. I do not know the man of whom you speak. The second time the rooster crowed, then Peter called to mind the word that Jesus had said to him. Before the rooster crows twice, you will deny me three times. And when he thought about it, he wept. He had good intentions, but he couldn't follow through in his own strength. And he denied the Lord. And the Lord used that for good purpose in him and would restore him later in the end of John's gospel, as you know. Then we have the trial by Pilate, the mocking of the soldiers, the agonies of the cross, all these that the Lord anticipated. The Lord knew that he would be handed over to the Gentiles. I mean, that's that's bad enough. I mean, it's bad enough that your people deny you, your friends forsake you, but then the Jewish leaders turn you over to the Romans. They don't even kind of protect their own blood, you know? That's terrible. So he goes to an unjust trial by Pilate. He also faced Herod in this time, uh, as we know from reading these portions. So in the morning, the chief priests held a consultation with the elders and scribes and the whole council. They bound Jesus and they led him away and delivered him to Pilate. And Pilate begins his inquiry, asked him, are you the king of the Jews? And he answered and said to him, it is as you say. The chief priests accused him of many things, but he answered nothing. And Pilate asked him again, saying, do you answer nothing? See how many things they testify against you? But Jesus still answered nothing, so that Pilate marveled. Now at the feast, he was accustomed to releasing one prisoner to them, whomever they requested. And uh, you know the story, the chief priests stirred up the people to get them to release Barabbas, who was a murderer, an insurrectionist, and they traded Jesus for him. 
That's just like an unjust society, isn't it? Let somebody who's a murderer go. Don't convict them. Let them just run the streets and do their evil again. And Pilate is, is, is very troubled by this. He's, he, well, at least somewhat troubled. He says, why, what evil has he done? They want to crucify him. But they cried out all the more, crucify him. Verse 15, so Pilate, wanting to gratify the crowd, there's the man pleaser in him, released Barabbas to them, and he delivered Jesus after he had scourged him to be crucified. And you see, he didn't use his authority very well. He had authority to take those rabble-rousers and to do to them what they thought to do to Jesus. That would have straightened him out right quick, wouldn't it? Yes, it would have, but he didn't do that. He wanted to gratify the crowd, and so the soldiers then took him and they mocked him. Can you imagine knowing in, in advance this awful event? Jesus did. Mark chapter 10, verse 33 and 34. He says, Behold, we're going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be betrayed to the chief priests and the scribes, and they will condemn him to death and deliver him to the Gentiles, and they will mock him and scourge him and spit on him and kill him. And the third day he will rise again. So he had the mocking of the soldiers, and uh, we're now just coming to verses, 15, uh, verses 21 through 41. After the mocking, when they uh, compelled Simon of Cyrene to uh, the father of Alexander and Rufus to carry the cross because Jesus was too weakened to do that, um, and they gave him wine mingled with myrrh and it says in verse 24, when they crucified him, that is, when they hung him upon the cross, they divided his garments and cast lots. He had nothing left, not even clothing to wear. His, he had come to the end of the line. He wasn't coming off the cross alive, so he didn't need his clothing. He didn't need anything. So he had to suffer the agonies of the cross. Uh, lots has been written about that, and we sometimes ponder that at Easter time, Resurrection weekend, Good Friday in particular. Um, we, don't, we don't have time to rehearse all of that here, but it's very awful. Besides all that, uh, the people went by and wagged their heads and blasphemed him, mocked him, chief priests and the leaders. I mean, you'd think religious people would not do that. I mean, what does the scripture say about how we're to react to people's calamity? We don't laugh at people's calamity. We don't respond that way. There's something very wrong about doing that. And yet they were doing it, showing their true character. And they told Christ to come down from the cross that we may see and believe. Well, they weren't going to see and they weren't going to believe. They wouldn't believe even if somebody rose from the dead, it was, as was proved very shortly a few days later. So he had all the physical agonies of the cross. The Lord knew all that as well in advance. And finally, he experienced the wrath of God the Father. Mark 15, 33. When the sixth hour had come, there was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour. And at the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice saying, Eli, Eli, or Eloi, Eloi, in Mark's rendition, Lama Sabachthani is translated, my God, that's Eli, and then my God again, second time, why have you forsaken me? Lama is why, and then the sabachthan 
is forsaken and the I at the end is me, why have you forsaken me? The meaning of Jesus being forsaken by God is somewhat debated, not strongly, I would say, but somewhat. Ultimately, we know that he was not abandoned in the long run because of Psalm 1610. What does Psalm 1610 say? You will not abandon my soul to Sheol. You, know, you will not forsake me there. You will not leave me alone there. But that wasn't until Sunday. What about Friday? What about right then? In that moment on the cross, in his humanity, Jesus truly felt and in fact was in a true sense forsaken as he bore the wrath of God against human sin. I don't think that we can say that God the Son was in perfect harmony with God the Father in those moments. I take it that way because I think if you don't, you would lessen the meaning of the cross. The darkness over the land was a manifest symbol of the displeasure of God against mankind represented in the ultimate man that day. That is, Jesus was there representing humanity, substituting for humanity in their need for sin to be paid for, the wrath of the Father. Jesus knew about all that. Then the burial. Mark 15, 42, they took him down from the cross. Joseph of Arimathea did, a prominent council member, 43, who was himself waiting for the kingdom of God, coming and taking courage, went into Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus. Pilate checked to make sure he was dead. He was. He granted the body to Joseph. Joseph brought, bought a fine linen, took him down, wrapped him in the linen, laid him in a tomb. It was very hasty because it had to be done before sundown. Uh, this tomb was hewn out of the rock. He rolled a stone against the door of the tomb and says Mary Magdalene and Mary, the mother of Joseph, observed where he was laid. The Lord knew about this too. Remember? How did he, where would you go in the scriptures to prove that he knew in advance about his burial? Well, one place that I would go to is when he talked about this, when they asked him for a sign. Remember, and he said, no sign would be given to you except for the sign of the prophet Jonah, who was three days Three nights in the heart of the belly of the fish, so the Son of Man will be three days in the heart of the earth. So he knew he would be buried. The disciples spent the rest of their lives unpacking the significance of the events of that night and of the Last Supper and the next day and that weekend. Those events did happen, but they did not only happen. They happened for a reason and with a deep meaning. As Paul said, Jesus died for our sins. And that's why we're here to remember him. So join me in prayer as we close this portion of our service, and then we'll go to remember the Lord with the elements of the table. Heavenly Father, we bow before you and thank you for the going through the awful agony of anticipation. Those years and those last hours knowing what was coming for us. 
That anticipation was not itself atoning, we confess, because it was really the work upon the cross receiving the wrath of God that was atoning. But in your humanity, O Lord, you had to deal with all of that reality, and we thank you for doing that. We thank you for sacrificing yourself for us, for giving yourself for sinners. May we gratefully acknowledge that and remember it now as we partake of the Lord's table. In Jesus' name, amen.